Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good evening and welcome everybody to another episode of The Axiom Principle. I am your host, Dr. G. I apologize for being a little bit late. I had some technical difficulties. Uh, their plug-in for the web didn't work at all. And then when I tried um, Skype, it decided to be oh so special and not connect either. So I had no audio. I couldn't hear anything. Um, I couldn't even see the, the uh, console to get in. So it was a little bit of a pain. Um, took me about five minutes to actually dial in. It's just annoying. Okay, so let's get on topic, shall we? The uh, subject for today is what I dubbed the Marxist problem. Why it's a problem and where it came from. What the? I'm not going to offer any solutions as of yet because it's a it's a major complex problem that has a lot of. Um, I guess you could say nuance, but not really. It's got a lot of uh, complications that would require a, a significant effort to um, turn around. But let's get into it. So first off, what is Marxism? In uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica is where I sourced uh, this definition from to give it a little bit more complex uh, definition. And that is the – it's the body of doctrine developed by Karl Marx, and he's uh, – uh, we'll get into him in a little bit, and I'll give you a little bit of a bio about that guy. And it was also developed by Frederick Engels in the 19th century. So 1845, I believe, is when the Communist Manifesto was written, somewhere around there. It consists of three related ideas, a philosophical, an anthropological, and a theory of history. The theory of history is very special. Um, I recommend reading Socialism, Scientific, and Utopian if you can, and uh, <laughs> have some fun with that. It's actually on uh, Kindle. It's free. It's uh, open public download, I guess you could say. Same with the Communist Manifesto. You can get that guy for free on Kindle as well. Um, both of them, the Communist Manifesto is an easier read than the Socialism one. The Socialism is overly complicated to read, and I don't mean that they use big words and make it hard to read. I mean that, uh, to give you an example, one sentence had about 10 commas in it. That was poor, poorly written. It was horrible. It was almost as if the person that wrote it didn't have any idea what the hell he was talking about. But that's neither here nor there. So anyways, uh, Marxism has also been understood and practiced in various socialist movements, particularly before 1914. And then there's uh, Soviet Marxism, which was worked out by Lenin and modified by Joseph Stalin. And I want you to pay attention to some of the names that are going to be dropped here in a second, because it's 
something that should tell you a hell of a lot about Marxism and why it's usually just a really bad idea to even think it's a cool idea. So under uh, the Russian Revolution in 1917 is when communism was set up. And then offshoots of Marxism interpreted by anti-Stalinists was Trotsky and his followers, Mao Zedong. And he created a variant of Marxism and Leninism. And uh, Marxism is developed in various different ways around the world. Today, it's applied consisting of a draw and black and white view of what is modern society, specifically the class struggle as it's seen as a fight, a revolution, and a constant war between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Um, bourgeoisie and the proletariat are basically those who have versus those who have not. Uh, that uh, class struggle is essentially the working class versus the capitalists or the ones that are in charge, the feudal lords, if you will. Uh, the development of class uh, capitalism, uh, the class struggle took an acute form, basically two classes as it's spelled out. Um, the owners of production, those are basically the bosses, the guys that develop the, the factories, the ones that are in charge of companies, the CEOs, and the workers, and the workers of the proletariat. So, um, the interesting bit that I thought was just painful to read, and this is out of the Communist Manifesto, the bourgeoisie and the, and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable, meaning that communism is an inevitable um, circumstance of capitalism. Capitalism comes first, then a form of capital or socialism or communism. And then full-blown communism is the utopian result of what will happen because capitalism is inevitably going to fail. Ironically, it seems to be the quite the opposite is the thing that usually occurs. So Marxist philosophy um and that inevitably leads to the fall of capitalism, just like, like I said. And the supplanting of communism is what they lead us to. But both of those essentially means that Marxist philosophy leads to these inevitabilities. So for every Marxist that exists will necessarily be either a socialist or a communist, or they'll be both a socio-communist, if you will. But uh, just remember the names that were dropped there, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. Um, you get a lot of crap from uh, theists, uh, Christians in particular, saying, oh, look at all these atheists that caused all these deaths. Stalin, 25 million. Mao, like 18 to 20 million. And then socialism, you had uh, the... The infamous devil himself, Hitler. Hitler actually did not like the Marxist school, uh, as a side note, and kicked them out of the country. And we'll get to that and how it developed into um, something that's equally as abhorrent later. But uh, first, let me cover a little bit of what they mean by communism or socialism, because I think it's the crux of all Marxism. And it's important to note out what those are. Um, normally, I would assume that most people kind of know what 
you know, um, communism and, and socialism are. But for the sake of those that may not or don't dig into it as much, I, I'll simplify it as well as I can. Um, this is from the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica again. Uh, communism is a political and economic doctrine that aims to replace private property and profit-based economy with public ownership, communal control of at least major means of production, natural resources, and the natural resources of society. It is a form of socialism. Um, some people consider it a higher and more advanced form, according to its advocates, of course, and I don't see, honestly, much difference between communists and socialists. They both kind of want the same thing. Um, socialists seem to favor uh, dec democratic means, meaning that they want it done at the will of the people, where communism ends up being at the will of the powerful, at the will of those that are in charge. And uh, both of them adhere to Socialism of Karl Marx, or the communism is Karl Marx. So that in itself is what uh, you could consider Marxism. Essentially, it's the look into and the collection thereof, the means of production, and a mode between a black and white view of basically all culture, or not culture, all of society, um, looking as if there is only two dichotomies in everything. There's the haves and the have-nots. There is the uh, wage workers, and then there's the owners. And the owners are obviously oppressing you. In the Communist Manifesto, in fact, it, it says multiple times that capitalism is in itself a form of slavery, you work for your masters. You get paid a wage, sure. That's that's neither here nor there. But you still have to turn around and consume things. You have to pay out that wage to live um, to the people that still own the means of production. In other words, you don't own your own means. You don't get to control and own anything. This necessarily, of course, flies in the face of all of America because the American dream and the American focus is that one can make their own life if they so choose. You can start your own business. You can start your own life. You can do your own thing, and no one's stopping you from doing so. But the problem is you have to compete against others in the market, or you have to have something that no one has ever done before, and then you have to get it out there. Not everybody has the capability of doing this which is why so many businesses fail. Get into a little bit Karl Marx as himself. So I'm going over to stanford.edu, one of my favorite sites, um, particularly plato.stanford.edu. This is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Brilliant site if you've never been there. I, I recommend it to absolutely everybody. And uh, they have a section. It's called entry slash, or slash entry slash Marx. And it's for Karl Marx. So I'm just going to read here just a little bit of it. Karl Marx, born 1818, died 1883, best known not as a philosopher, but as a revolutionary whose works inspired the foundation of many communist regimes in the 20th century. I listed a few. Mao, Stalin, Leninism. Yeah. 
He, he, he founded a few, all right. It's hard to think of many who have lived as much influence in creation of the modern world. It's true that he has had much influence in the modern world. Um, all of the influence that he has led has led to blood. So I'm not sure that's a positive influence. It's right up there with uh, Hitler, but not as insidious. It was his philosophy that led to the deaths of millions. Not sure we should be praising him. Trained as a philosopher, Marx turned away from philosophy in his mid-twenties toward economics and politics. However, in the addition of his overtly philosophical early work, his later writings have many points of contact with contemporary philosophical debates, especially those in history and social sciences, and in moral and political philosophy. Historical materialism, Marx's theory of history, is centered around the idea that the forms of society rise and fall as they further and then impede the development of human productive power. Marx sees the historical process proceeding through a necessary series of modes of production, characterized by class struggles culminating in communism. Marxist economic analysis of capitalism is based on his version of the labor theory of value, which includes the analysis of capitalist profit as the extraction of surplus value from the exploited proletariat working class. The analysis of history and economics come together in Marx's prediction of the inevitable economic breakdown of capitalism to be replaced by communism. However, Marx refused to speculate in detail about the nature of communism, arguing that it would arise through historical processes and was not the realization of a predeterminate moral ideal. Well, let's look at the history that he has wrought over the last hundred years, shall we? The rise of communism in the two countries that are still largely communist have led to the subsequent oppression of the people in general, haven't they? Both Stalin and Mao have killed millions to put their communist utopia first. Both have destroyed their people in, in a way that's irreparable. To give you an example, most people in the West know about Tiananmen Square, know what happened in the, in the revolts in the, uh, the uh, riots, I guess you could say. They rode, they rode tanks over students during the, uh, the uprising of Tiananmen Square. But if you were to talk to anybody there, the, the knowledge of it is suppressed. The government controls all of it. You're not allowed to search it up. You're not allowed to find out. It is a black mark on the communist history, and they don't want anybody to know, especially their own people, because it might lead to another revolt. People have been murdered and killed to keep the people in line. Now, here's the plus side of their communist um, regime. Everybody gets like free stuff, essentially. The government provides you with everything you'd need. Everybody can get a phone, a cell phone, essentially. But the government watches everything you do on that phone, listens to every call, and monitors all web traffic. In fact, Google was a company that tried to open up its doors to communist China and put a uh, location there to basically broaden their market, right? 
the communists there said, we don't want these things searched. We don't want those things searched. We don't want any routed traffic of these topics. We want the um, we want full control of any and all um, data that comes into or out of the people of China, and they wanted they wanted full control basically of Google's um, use in China. That lasted four months. Google went in, set up their facility, built everything there, was ready to go open live. The government stepped in, says we want full control of all this shit. And Google says, okay, peace, I'm out. We're not doing this. Because at the time, before the uh, the recent predicament and stupidity that now exists within Google happened, they actually had some ethics. And they pulled quickly out of communist China because it didn't align with their with the Google's core values of open and free knowledge. But at any rate, Karl Marx is the founding principal, or founding father, if you will, um, of Marxism. What's interesting is if you look through his uh, original writings, and this is a little bit off topic, and I'm I'm going to do a YouTube video about this later, but it's it's going to be interesting nonetheless. He has a section where he wrote in his early writings on the Jewish question. I'm going to look into that and do a little video about it because the Jewish question always comes up uh, when you're talking to crazy social justice warriors, communists, they're alt-right, uh, just anyway who plays identity politics, and the Jewish question comes up. I think it's an idiotic question, anti-Semitic question, and to bring it up as if they have a cabal conspiracy against everyone is absolutely retarded. What they do have is cultural, and the reason why it does better than everybody else's culture is because it's ancient, it's old, it's rehearsed, it's refined, and it works. You don't – most people don't want to recognize that fact. So that, that'll be a, a, a different subject further down the road. Okay, so let's move on. I want to discuss a little bit about communism here a little bit. Oh, no, I didn't. I already hit communism. Um, but I do want to touch on the next part of this whole conundrum, which is socialism. Socialism is the economic doctrine that calls for public rather than private ownership and control of property and natural resources. That's the simplistic view of it. So essentially what this means is your house is not your own. You have no private property. It is public property. You just happen to live there. This also means that anybody else that decides they like your house can also walk in and just say, I live here too, because they can. This this goes for... Anything else, like you own nothing. It's owned by the people. What eventually happens is the government is uh, the people. Because the conviction of, as it says in Encyclopedia Britannica, the conviction puts socialism in direct opposition to capitalism. Because capitalism is based on private, even including the means of production. Uh, what you can and cannot do is a free choice. Whether what you want to do with your life is absolutely your decision. There was a there was a quote that I read 
Uh, let me see if I copied it over. No, it doesn't look like I copied it over. Dang it. Perhaps it's in in, in the links I still have open. <laughs> doesn't look like it. Yeah. Oh, well. So what I was going to say – oh, there it is. It's under communism. From each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. What this means – is if you have the ability to design rocket fuel, you know how to do it. You're really good at it. Who's going to need it? Everybody? It's, it's a social project. So are you going to build rocket fuel? No. It's, no one needs it. How about getting to the moon? Does everybody need to get to the moon? It, does, does society need to get to the moon? Is there a competition? Uh, what benefits are there to society to get to the moon? None. But we have the ability to get to the moon. Just there's no need to get to the moon. No economic need. No practical need. It falls on its head for several reasons. And and let's go over those reasons a little bit before I step off into the next section. So you're talking about communism and, and Marxism as uh, publicly owned control production, right? No competition. Zero. What incentive do people have – um, to do better than somebody else. When everybody gets everything equally, what, why would anybody even try to be better than anyone else? What, what benefit would it bring to them? Sure, people could come to them more, but they get nothing out of it. Maybe they enjoy it for a little while. That could be true, right? If, if you have a doctor, for example, that's really, really good at open-heart surgery, um, Anyone that needs heart surgery can go to this person. Since there's just this one guy that can do it, you got a million people waiting in line for open heart surgery. There's no benefit for them doing it. They're just the one person that can do it. So they continue on, right? Where then comes the opportunity to better himself or herself? Why would they have to be better than the next person? There, there's no need. You can go to the same people. You, you, you have a standard way of doing it at that point. You have to standardize the procedure. There's no difference. There's no competition. There's nothing. So if they have the ability, then everybody, everybody is entitled to your ability. This this is awfully, awfully perverse to me, and that's the start of the, the Marxist problem. This is where it comes into and being a problem in comparison to capitalism where private ownership is paramount. It's first. I want to consider this, the psychological aspects of being social versus being capital in, in reference to the ideology. So let's look at um, – a couple of a base emotions, um, one of them being pride. This is the first one that comes up to my mind, pride. If someone takes pride in their work, would they want to give it away for free? Or would they want it to be of high value that only certain people can get it? 
would uh, I would say that let's say you're an artist in that those cases if you made something that you wanted everybody to see you'd put it on display for free correct right then in that case why do all artists not put all their music for example let's do the music industry why does Beyonce demand people pay her for her music or Taylor Swift for that matter those those two are highly sought after artists and they have high ability should they not give their music out for free what incentive do they have to continue to sing at that point they do it for free they do it because everybody likes it right where is pride in that example there's no longer pride network. It's now given away to everybody as if you were a charitable individual with just the goodest intentions at heart. Meanwhile, somebody moves into your house and you have no security. But everybody knows you. Everybody's entitled to your voice. I see a problem with that if you think about it. That would put you at the mercy to be the slave of the body of people. Your means, your ability, your capability of building things and doing things is now owned by everybody else. You have no pride. You have no ownership. You are now a slave of the people. You're not a slave of individual people. You're, you're demanded by everybody to continue doing what you're good at and give it away. With zero ownership and zero pride and zero deterministic behaviors. Another thing that, that your core based um, your core behaviors have, which kind of aligns with tribalism in a sense, is the concept of ownership. Now what I find rather interesting and yet slightly irritating is people do develop emotional attachment to things. Not necessarily people, but things. People take pride in their cars, in their house, in their trophies, in their computer equipment. Maybe they like their, their computer, right? They built it themselves. They, they spec'd it out exactly how they wanted it. It's a beautiful thing. And you can go down that to like wood cabinetry. I mean anything. Anything that's produced by the hands of a person the person that built it takes pride in creation and ownership. If they were building it for themselves and then somebody comes on and says, I want that and takes it because they can, you have to build another to keep for yourself and then another and then another because they can just come in and take it. It's everybody's. It's not just yours. The, the conflation between that is then your sense of pride is destroyed because what you make is no longer your own. So why make it? What, what purpose would it be for you to make something for yourself that everybody is going to take from you? And you, you value that thing. Think of anything that you've ever built in your life that you, know, you did a really good job on, that you're proud that you created, that you took the time to build up, put together, and and just make it something amazing, right? And the government 
would have to step in because the government would have to be the ones that enforce this Marxism upon other people. And they just take it. Right? This is now belonging to the people, not to you. You, you don't get to own this. This is the people's. That, that could be psychologically and, and emotionally devastating and damaging to people. They would have no incentive to do anything else for themselves because everything would be belonging to the people. Now, for those that think that there is an altruistic nature to uh, doing it this way, that people just do things for other people out of the kindness of their heart, they're sorely mistaken and, and fail to understand evolution in the survival sense of our own psychology. Because in psychology, in evolutionary psychology in particular, if you read, say, The Selfish Gene, or you look into evolutionary psychology and survival as a social means, because we're a social species, it's largely in our own self-interest to be kind toward others and to be uh, helpful toward others or toward our community or toward our tribe, however you want to put it, because we tend to survive as a selfish thing better when we help others in a group. So being helpful to the group is not so bad, but when you start getting to the size of society that we have, helping each other is not exactly an easy or feasible thing. Now you're, you're asking to help complete strangers that you don't know because, which is against our very nature. That's one of the problems of the, the Marxist problem. It, the Marxism and in, in leading to communism is against very nature. Producing your own thing and then owning it and then it becoming a owner owned by the state is against the nature of our own tribalistic communities. Now, if you were to do it on a, a national level like they've done in China or they've done in Venezuela or they've done in um, World War II or World War Germany – or even Russia, you note the standard of living of the people is not exactly all that great. It's, as would be put, a, a struggle and a bad one because they're, you're basically making society that goes against its own nature. The, no, one, no competition, no drive to be better. You, you just move along and produce for the state because you have to. It creates a, a, a giant bubble and an issue for much of anything that has to do with human behavior, mainly because it goes against our very nature to be such a thing. But let's shift gears a little bit. I want to get to something that is associated with um, Marxism, that's really quite entertaining. And that's called cultural Marxism. And I believe I'm going to start with a piece. Uh, yeah, I'm going to start with the uh, cultural Marxism as seen by. Oh, this is going to be great. The Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, they did a piece August 2003 is how old this thing is. 
They did a piece back then called Cultural Marxism, a conspiracy theory with an anti-Semitic twist is being pushed by much of the American right. So it's a right-wing authoritarian – well, at this day and age, it would be called the alt-right, which is a spitting image of the alt-left or the left-wing or social justice warriors, however you want to put it. They're mere images of each other. But but let me read you a couple, couple lines out of this. It's really entertaining. So I'm going to skip the first paragraph because it just does a bunch of disgusting strawman-type stupidity arguments. Cultural Marxism, described as a conspiratorial attempt to wreck American culture and morality, is the newest intellectual bugaboo on the radical right. Surprisingly, there are signs that this bizarre theory is catching on in the mainstream. Yeah. The phrase refers to a kind of political correctness on steroids, a covert assault on the American way of life that allegedly has been developed by the left over the course of the last 70 years. I would actually not put it at 70 years. I'd probably put it at 30 or 40 years. Whenever the Frankfurt School decided to step into the Columbia and uh, Columbia University and thought that putting forth Marxism was a really cool idea. Right-wing ideologues, racists, and other extremists have jazzed up political correctness and repackaged it in its most vitriolent form as an anti-Semitic theory that identifies Jews in general and several Jewish intellectuals in particular as nefarious communistic destroyers. These supposed originators of cultural Marxism are seen as conspiratorial plotters intent on making Americans feel guilty, thus subverting their Christian culture. Wow. Now this is from the Southern Poverty Law Center 15 years ago-ish, right? Well, there is a piece that was published. I actually can't find a date on this stupid thing, but by the distinguished professor at UCLA and actually he's been around since the 1970s as well got his degree in 1973 a PhD in philosophy his name is Douglas Kellner distinguished professor of education and gender studies at the and Germanic languages excuse me almost missed that part Teaching and research interest. He's engaged in ongoing exploration of differences of cultural studies and the philosophy of education. So this is this guy from UCLA. Just amazing, isn't it? Let me see. Oh, bummer. I was hoping some of his publications as of late would have a date on it, but apparently on this one there's no date. The Rise of Cultural Marxism, he writes, Marx and Engels rarely wrote in much detail on the cultural phenomenon that they tended to mention in passing. Marx's notebook has some references on the novels of Eugene Sue, a popular media and English foreign press, and that is 1857-1858. Outline of political economy refers to Homer's work expressed on the infancy of human species as if culture Cultural texts were importantly related to social and historical development. This is the historical, cultural, Marxism, and, and anthropological sense, which is oh so special. 
In general, for a Marxian approach, cultural forms always emerge in specific historical situations, serving particular socioeconomic interests and carried out important social functions. This guy is a Marxist, by the way. Let's let's make no qualms about calling him this guy, a Marxist. But I'm going to skip down to uh, to a section he wrote. I got about three paragraphs. I'm going to read them to you here. And uh, it should explain what cultural Marxism is, as in seen the modern day. But of course, it's a conspiracy theory by the alt-right, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, as trustworthy as they are. In many versions, post-1980s cultural studies, however, there have been turned out to white meat what might be called postmodern problematic it would be called a excuse me what might be called a postmodern problematic which emphasizes pleasure consumption and individual construction of identities in terms of what Maguire calls cultural popularism and i want you to make note construction of identities as if your identity didn't exist and you had to build it from nothing Media culture, from this perspective, produces materials for identities, pleasures, and empowerment, and thus audiences constitute by the popular through their consumption of cultural products. During this phase, roughly midterm, blah, 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 culture studies in Britain and North America turned from the socialist and revolutionary politics of the previous stages to postmodern forms of identity politics and less critical perspectives on media and consumer culture. Emphasis was placed more and more on audience consumption and reception and displaced engaged production and distribution of texts and how texts were produced in the media industries. Consequently, the turn to a postmodern cultural studies is a response to a new era of global capitalism. What is described as the new revisionism severs cultural studies from political, and e- political economy and social critical social theory. During the postmodern 12 stage of cultural studies, there's a widespread tendency to decenter or even completely ignore economics, history, and politics in favor of emphasis on local pleasures, consumption, and construction of hybrid identities from the material of the popular. This culture populism replicates in turn postmodern theory away from Marxism and is Alleged reconstructionism masters narratives of liberation, domination, and historical theology. Teleology, yeah. So, what he is meaning by this is to say that cultural Marxism is a development through postmodernism of identity politics and cultural studies. So, anybody that studies culture the postmodern version of that culture and how people please themselves and construct their identities. That is the core essence of cultural Marxism. Now, if I point out before, well, I will point out what I said before, and that is to say that cultural Marxism contains the class struggle, the power struggle, the have versus the have nots. It's very black and white thinking. It's very non-dynamic. It's us versus them. There's two problems to this. First, it preys on our tribalistic tendencies. 
is to say that the determinate factors that what once made up a tribe back, oh, 6,000 years ago, I guess, maybe a little bit further before we fully developed into civil societies, or more civil societies, I guess you could say, when we were, were indeed tribes that were segregated or separated by environment um, because it was almost impossible to travel across country, basically. It'd take months. No one ever did it. You'd, you'd go and settle, and that would be it. No, oh, sounds like somebody's alarm's going off. I apologize for that. <laughs> There's not much I can do about it. I think somebody's calling. Oh, well. Anyways, what it is, uh, what that connects to in the tribalistic sense of the, of the words in the, in the Marxist theory is you'd have two tribes, essentially, and those two tribes can be identified in some way, e- economic, um, social, political, whatever, and put them against each other. But cultural Marxism must then necessarily derive things from identity, from pleasures, and empowerment. Well, the core of one's identity could be different from person to person. What makes up my identity is not the same as somebody else's identity, which is why gender studies is such a special little place where gender can be fluid, can be dynamic, and it is a socialized um, expression of oneself and their gender or their roles. However, when you apply a Marxist lens to this, you must therefore necessarily take on a black and white dichotomy. There cannot be multiple genders. But to say that would be sexist, I guess, you, they would put it in today's world. But what it comes down to, uh, especially since feminism has adopted the Marxist philosophy, is that the dichotomy is man versus woman. Woman is more fluid, man is not, therefore man is evil. Or some, some form of that. right? The Critical race theory, as it's put out, the critical studies in general, which I'll get to in a second, take the Marxist lens of us versus them, the, the only important thing, I guess, that they pulled out of it, and applies it to demographic information. And when you take on culture, you must therefore necessarily identify two different cultures and put one against the other. In today's uh, cultural Marxist theory, it's Everybody against the white man because the white man is the majority and everybody else is the minority. This split makes sense in, a, in the postmodern framework because it's, it's easy to see where that split starts and ends. The minority has very distinct behaviors, which ironically are untrue in most cases, and it's based on ignorance, of course. But they've, they've defined their culture as they see fit, but then they also in turn define the culture of the opposing party as if they had one. In reality, the, let's say the, the, the American way, for example, those um, cultures act, actually often overlap. There is very little distinction between any one or the other, which is why at a nationalistic perspective or a national identity – is what um, tantamounts or supersedes any uh, individual or political identity in, in the frame of uh, culture. 
because the American culture, for example, is the uh, uh, pretty well defined. It's uh, how could I put it? The American dream, as it was, is one of the core values of the American people, and it's largely based on um, merit or meritocracy. You can achieve whatever you can possibly achieve and excel and even become a millionaire if you so choose to do so. The market is in such a way that you can make that happen. You can fight yourself up a ladder to the seat of the CEO from being a housewife, for example. That happened with, uh, I think it's the Great Wolf Lodge was the place where that happened. Like The lady that's the CEO there, she started as like nothing and she worked her ass off to take over the CEO seat of one of the major theme parks slash hotels slash restaurants in the country. Whatever you're able to accomplish is open and available to all in, in the United States, including those from other countries, which is why we have a influx of illegal aliens because they too want that dream because their country does not provide for that be it a socialist company, country, a communist one, a hybrid, a non-democratic, uh, or actually it could be completely democratic, mob rule wins. But if you're the minority amongst the mob, you're the one that's oppressed. Fortunately for us, we're a representative republic, so the mob does not rule in the United States. However... The, uh, the culture of Marxism doesn't stop there. It, it basically fuels all sorts of the negative connotations that we have in our society today. Racism, sexism, um, xenophobia, all that stuff. It's us versus them. That is the Marxist lens. Us versus them. The haves versus the have-nots. The blacks versus the white. Men versus women. Americans versus non-Americans. This Marxist dichotomy uh, applied to culture inevitably will destroy a, a host nation's culture because no two cultures are, are even. Some are better than others. If we were to have a, a utopian Marxist society, all culture would have to be the same. That doesn't happen when you have multiple religions in the same country, a part of the same culture. As, as America and other Western countries do. You'd have to remove all religion first before you could actually apply any of the socialist or communist ideal, ideals to work in that country. It just wouldn't work otherwise. But there was one little piece in this that I thought I'd point out. Uh, where are you? That is the final link in the puzzle. And uh, in one of my other pieces, I covered like shopping for colleges and whatnot. Well, this is, this is a uh, section of study that should be completely avoided. It's garbage. And it's garbage because of the way they use certain keywords and that it makes it misleading. And that is called critical theory. Critical theory has an, uh, this is going back to Plato, Stanford, EDU, 
I'm using their definition of what critical theory is. It was written in 2005. So critical theory has a narrow and broad meaning in philosophy and in the history of social sciences. Critical theory, in the narrow sense, designates several generations of German philosophers and social theorists in Western European Marxist traditions known as the Frankfurt School. According to these theorists, a critical theory may be distinguished from a traditional theory according to a specific practice or purpose. A theory is critical to the extent that it seeks the emancipation from slavery, acts as a liberating influence, and works to create a world which satisfies the needs and powers of human beings. Because such theories aim to explain and transform all the circumstances that enslave human beings, many critical theories in the broader sense have been developed. They have emerged in connection with many social movements and that identify the very dimensions of domination of human beings in the modern societies. In both the broad and the narrow senses, however, critical theory provides the descriptive and normative basis of social inquiry aimed at decreasing domination and increasing freedom in all their forms. Here is the crux of the problem of applying Marxism as a philosophical, social construct, whatever you freaking want to call it. What if there's no subjugation? What if there's no slavery? They, the problem with this is, in the Marxist lens, the Marxist theory, capitalism is slavery. If you can't make it in this world, you must – therefore – oh, man, I can't even speak because it's got me so flustered. If you can't make it in this world – in the Western society, it's not because your capabilities aren't to the par of what you need to make it in this world. Perhaps you don't know what your talent is or you haven't discovered what your passion is. Or maybe you're just not good at anything. I mean that's completely possible too, right? There are people that are just not good at stuff. Like I, I don't do medicine and that's the reason why I'm not a medical doctor is because no <laughs> – I don't want to touch needles. I don't want to uh, use scalpels. It's just it repug it. It's repugnant to me. I get somewhat physically ill, and I I'm a person that has to inject myself with uh, medication every two weeks, which kind of sucks. But think about this: if the dichotomy of the Marxist theory is have versus have-nots, or one tribe against the other, and it brings into the academic sources of critical theory, which basically attempts to uh, describe how things are and then force or impose change upon them. What then is there to say that when you bring up, let's put critical race theory, which is a Marxist lens of race, what you think, what do you think would happen in this sense? It would, it, was, it would must – oh, man, this thing irritates me so much I don't like it. In, in the sense of critical race theory, applying the Marxist lens, you must, you must therefore necessarily have a two-faced dichotomy, a black and white dichotomy. In fact, ironically, black and white is both the fallacy and the argument because it is black against white when it comes to critical race theory. It's anybody with a darker skin versus white skin because that's the easy dichotomy to notice. 
there is no nuance in between. Either you act white or you are white because it talks to cultural norms. And of course, meritocracy is a white construct. This is why you see in critical race theory the construct of whiteness because they have to define what is white in order to apply the Marxist lens of a fighting, an oppressive system that exists in their philosophical view. And of course, applying the critical theory merits to this would necessarily then put them in a position where they must fight against the power that is whiteness because it is oppressing everyone else. I see, a, I see a huge issue with this. It makes no sense. You're talking about putting two things together that don't make sense at all. It's pitting us against ourselves, essentially, is the way I see it. It's a deconstructionist view of something that's more complex than, than they put on, and it's a postmodern view, which is entirely against and antithetical to anything that could be considered modern, philosophical, enlightened. Ironically, um, those that purport the critical theory and put forth this kind of stuff are not helping society. They're not discussing power dynamics. They're not actually putting anything forward because they malform the theory. They malform the, the very definition, the use of theory. Theory uh, from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, just to play the way I usually do. I don't argue from redefinement of words. I argue from the foundation of our language. A plausible or scientifically acceptable general principle or body of principles offered to explain phenomena. That is the first definition. There's actually five or six. Abstract thought is one. A general abstract principle, a body of fact, a science and art. A hypothesis assumed for sake of argument or investigation, unproven assumption or conjecture. A body of theorems presenting a concise systematic view of a subject. A belief, policy, or procedure proposed or followed as the basis of action an ideal or hypothetical set of facts or principles or circumstances often used in the phrase in theory. So it has multiple meanings and definitions, as you can see, but none of them fall in line with how cultural or critical theory is defined. Which is to say that is a theory that is critical to the extent that it exceeds emancipation from slavery and acts of liberating influence and works to create a world which is which satisfies the needs and powers. So how do you get from a theorem, a theory, a construct that explains natural phenomenon, right? Or explains phenomenon in general, or even a procedure this, therefore, then, you know, it's a theory of how they want their children to learn is how it's put here. It, is it an abstract thought? Is it just a guess? Is it an analysis of set of facts in relation to one another? No, it's not. In critical theory, 
It's a set of presuppositions in a postmodern view based on a Marxist lens of black and white thinking or a dichotomy that may or may not exist, and then applied or pushed forth onto culture in order to manipulate it or change it. The Marxist theory, the Marxist application of social theory in general, which is being taught in college, by the way, across this country. Everybody seems to think that critical theory is a great idea. Where you'll find it is in women's studies and gender studies in particular. But you also find it in sociology, which is also equally as infuriating. But all these pieces come together and come to the head. Uh, basically, it's all Marxist. Marxist being, in the simplest possible terms, taking two different groups, comparing them to each other, and saying a revolution must occur where they now must, must be equal. The problem with that is, is no two people are equal. One person's better than the other in some form or fashion in different things. And the other person may be better at other things than the other. Or some people are just not good at anything, while other people are really good at everything. Those are rare and aren't far between. But what ends up happening is it pits them against each other to say that those that do not have must take what the haves do. This, this whole critical race theory, Marxism's philosophy and everything is just a giant problem, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to solve it. But knowing what that problem is is most important. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's really a lot to deconstruct in this particular episode. There's a lot of moving components. But it really comes down to really poor social theory that was applied to economics and, and uh, well, socioeconomics, I guess you could say. And it's rather quite atrocious. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, um, I've stepped up my YouTube channel. If you want to see me over there, I'll upload this one a little bit later. Uh, I always put the blog talk radio first. I, I prefer this even though it's an hour long. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Um, have a great night. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.